My name is Gene Colan, and welcome to my studio. Each time I got a story, it was always uppermost in my mind as to how different can I make this one, and this one, and so on. And as they came in, it was, I just threw myself into it, lived another life in a sense. I tried to get into that story myself. I tried to jump into the page and try to imagine what it would be like to see it visually as an outsider. When you have it developed a style, it's as recognizable as your hand, as your handwriting. Same thing. I wanted the, the story to be sort of uh, mystifying and sinister. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to FW Presents, the sometimes random anthology show of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Ryan Daly, and I'm back to talk about my favorite comic book artist just a little bit more. On eight previous episodes of FW Presents, I covered different comics illustrated by the legendary Gene Colan on a series whose title impressed nobody called Showcase Gene Colan. On this episode, I will address the listener comments that each episode received on the Fire and Water website. It shouldn't take too long because the episodes did not get much feedback. Before I get to that feedback, however, I wanted to cover one more short Gene Colan story as a kind of bonus treat for you listeners. And I brought along a guest for this short segment because I don't know very much about the character we're going to discuss, so I reached out to somebody who can provide a little context, even any tiny little bit of context. You probably know my guest from the Married with Comics podcast, where he and his wife Maggie have started doing one of my favorite new features, which involves them reading Encyclopedia Brown mysteries to each other. God, it's delightful. Please welcome Jonathan Schaefer Hames. What's up, John? Hey, Ryan. How you doing? Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank you for doing this. Back on the Daredevil episode, I said that I thought Gene Colan drew Daredevil more than any other comic, even Dracula. If there was another character to contend with the Man Without Fear and the Lord of Vampires for Gene Colan's attention, that would be the Western hero Hopalong Cassidy. From 1954 to 1957, Gene Colan was the artist on Hopalong Cassidy after DC took over the series from Fawcett Comics. Colan drew issues 86 through 122, and each issue contained three short stories. That's 111 consecutive Hopalong Cassidy stories drawn by Gene Colan. But of course, each story was roughly eight pages which doesn't compare to the volume of material that Colin would produce for superheroes and horror comics. Still, that was a significant part of Colin's early career, so I thought it worth exploring, and that is why John and I are going to talk about the third story from Hopalong Cassidy number 102. But before we get to that, John, what is your experience or your familiarity with the character? Basically, why did I tap you to talk about Hopalong Cassidy? Well, you tapped me to talk about Hopalong Cassidy because you asked on Twitter if anyone knew anything about Hopalong Cassidy. And I said, I know a little. And then you said, great, you're on my show. And I said, what? And then there was blackness and things, <laughs> and I found myself here. So I'm trying to remember what I do know about Hopalong Cassidy. But 
No, Hopple and Cassidy uh, brings back some childhood memories. There was a show on PBS in the summer during the day that would be on before uh, Reading Rainbow, I think. And it was called Six Gun Heroes. And it would play old B-Westerns, cheaply made Westerns that were very you know, simplistic, half hour long, uh, like Roy Rogers, Gene Autry, that sort of thing. But Hopalong Cassidy was, was one of those. And uh, I always liked him a little more than the other ones. He wasn't that much more, for lack of a better term, mature than the other ones, but he did have some cool things about him. For one thing, he, he wore all black and a black hat. And at that time, that was that was really strange. Black hats were bad guys, but Hopalong Cassidy was not a bad guy. He was a good guy, and he was. It was just standard stuff. He would ride into town, find some problems, find a problem, solve the problem, ride out of town. And I found out later they made like sixty some movies of this back in the B Western days, as well as the radio show, which I would occasionally encounter uh, when I would listen to old time radio stuff. Those were a little bit more mature. They were they were basically mysteries. There would be a mystery and hop along. And it would be, it's funny, we were talking about Encyclopedia Brown. It would be exactly that sort of mystery. One of the bad guys would slip up and hop along. Cassidy was really observant and he'd figure it out and then call him on it and solve the mystery. I don't know where I first heard the name, but I, I kind of just grew up. I, I knew that name. I never saw any Hopalong Cassidy movies or shows or anything like that. I, I didn't. I couldn't pick the character out of a lineup of Western heroes or of any of them. I just. I never saw those things, but I knew that name from somewhere. But one of one of my early memories of a Hopalong Cassidy reference, I swear, it was in the movie Fletch. with Chevy Chase and in the very beginning he's picked up by Tim Matheson's character and Tim Matheson brings him back to his mansion uh, because he's going to hire him for this nefarious job and his flesh is getting out of the car he's like he's like this is the craziest thing I almost bought this house then I found out Hopalong Cassidy killed himself here it really ruined it for me (laughs) (laughs) I always remember that joke I thought that was hilarious but Hopalong Cassidy book is mentioned in The Great Gatsby as well oh yeah oh man look here this had when he was a boy, it just shows you. Huh. Uh, okay, so we are talking about Hopalong Cassidy, issue 102. This book, which has a photo cover showing the, the actor William Boyd, who played him. Uh, the cover date was June 1955. The actual on-sale date was April 14th, 1955, with a cover price of 10 cents. I think, not positive, but I think... This is the oldest physical comic that I have a copy of. Um, I've, I've got, like, collections and reprints of, like, older stuff from the 40s, but I think, like, my oldest hard, like, normal floppy books are from the 60s. I don't think I have any other 50s books. Anyway, um, so we're going to look at the third and final story from this one, which is the Hopalong Cassidy Museum Wagon. It is written by France E. Heron, penciled by Gene Colan, inked by Ray Burnley, and edited by Julie Schwartz. Here he comes, here he comes, there's the trumpets, there's the drums, here he comes, Hopalong Cassidy, here he comes. A very special stagecoach pulls into the town of Prairie Gulch. This coach is the traveling Hopalong Cassidy museum wagon run by Bill Murdoch. Murdoch shows the townspeople various objects and articles of clothing, each previously belonging to Sheriff Cassidy and part of one of his adventures. First, Murdoch shows off a pair of Cassidy's worn boots. 
Hopalong removed those boots when he needed to sneak up on the Harper gang. Tying bandanas around his feet instead, he managed to get the drop on them. Then Murdoch shows off the sheriff's badge with a bullet hole in it. Hoppy lost the badge during a shootout with some cattle rustlers. He was pinned down in a canyon and needed to signal his posse in the hills. He attached the badge to the end of a stick and held it up. The sunlight reflecting off the badge worked to signal reinforcements, but one of the rustlers plugged the badge with a bullet. Then there's Hoppy's hat. He was captured by the Woolton train robbing gang and lowered into a deep well with no means of escape. When a stagecoach rode by, however, Hoppy tossed his hat out of the well and it landed right in the lap of the coachman, and it happened to have a note from Hoppy explaining his predicament. After the coachman rescued Hoppy, the sheriff took down the Woolton gang. Bill Murdoch tells the people he's following Hopalong Cassidy to the town of Twin Rivers, hoping to add more artifacts to his collection. At that time, Hoppy is chasing the Bradley gang through the mountains near Twin Rivers. The gang splits up, taking two different paths. Hopalong Cassidy pursues the leader of the gang. He rides up close enough to Bradley's horse and tackles him to the ground. But then he discovers that all he has captured was a wax dummy disguised as Bradley. Eventually, Hoppy chases the gang to their hideout, where a man called the Professor makes wax dummies that the gang uses in their robberies. When one of the gang's horses draws their attention, the Bradley boys spot Hoppy spying on them. They capture him and bring him inside their hideout. Not long after, Bill Murdoch's traveling museum pulls up. Murdoch sees Hoppy captured inside. After quickly putting a plan together, Murdoch knocks out the lights in the hideout. Fumbling around in the dark, the gang sees Hopalong Cassidy in front of the fireplace, silhouetted by the flames. They shoot at him, but they're astonished when Hoppy seems to be... melting. Too late, they realize it is one of the wax dummies dressed to look like Hoppy. The real Hopalong Cassidy has his guns pointed right at the Bradleys. Murdoch explains how he dressed one of the wax dummies in his Hopalong Cassidy clothes from the museum, but now they are all ruined from the fire or the wax dummy. The Bradley gang may have been captured, but it cost Bill Murdoch his life's work. Hoppy gets the idea to let Murdoch keep the professor's wax dummies, and he's able to turn the traveling museum wagon into a full-on display of the capture of the Bradley gang, with the dummies dressed as Hoppy and each of the robbers. All right, John, what did you think of this short story? Uh, well, it's uh, it's a fun little yarn. <laughs> Very, It's a rather typical Western uh, comic of the time. It's it's not really that great of a Hopalong Cassidy story, or, or it's it's actually not much of a Hopalong Cassidy story. It doesn't doesn't resemble his other adventures all that much. Mm. You would get the impression reading this that Hopalong Cassidy is a guy who who uh, uses little gadgets and things around him to be able to get out of things. That's not usually no. Usually he just shot it out with people until the cavalry showed up. <laughs> okay. 
but the art is great for this. Um, they really, he really got William Boyd's likeness down. He was the man who played Hopalong in, in everything, who did not kill himself in real life, by the way. He, I think he died of Parkinson's disease, if I remember right. Oh. Fletch. <laughs> I picked this one because, as I said in the prologue, this is part of Gene Colan's career. I do not think this is necessarily a staple of the art style that would he would come to define and be known by, which we see in more of the Silver Age during the 60s. I mean, this story was 10 years, I think, before he started doing the Submariner strip in Tales to Astonish, uh, and before he would pick up work in with Iron Man and Captain America and Daredevil. Uh, so this is, this. I mean, he had been, Gene Cullen had been working since the 40s, but I also think working for DC at the time on a kind of licensed book like this he he's drawing to a certain style he, he is making this look like you know william boyd like hopalong casting i do think he has the likeness and he this is kind of of a house piece that you would compare with a lot of other artists from this era um so you don't see a whole lot that to distinguish him but i do see things kind of like creeping up like on page two uh, the second panel where we see Bill Murdoch and that, that shot of his face. That is a face with so much character. Um, and, and we see a little bit more of the lines and the shadow and everything like that. But I, I, I see some individual touches in there. Um, and when we get to the, the professor's hideout with the wax dummies and, and the scene, like once the lights go out with the shadows, I, I do think you get a little bit more flourishes of the art. Um, at least from the, the three stories in this issue, this is the reason why I picked this one. Um, beyond that, I, I don't have a whole lot to say. I mean, from this story, having not experienced the shows or anything like that, like I would think that the the stories that are told in the beginning in the first couple of pages might be you know examples from some of his his movies or his serials. Well, he wasn't a sheriff for one thing. I don't know what that's all about. Cassidy's um, occupation appeared to be cowboy. You know, he would work on the side of Law and Order, but he would just kind of ride into to town. He always had a sidekick. Uh, he had two principal ones. He had a guy named Red, and then eventually a guy named California, and they were both comic relief. And sometimes he'd ride with a kid as mm-hmm. well. But that was that, especially once he got older. Mm-hmm. He played this guy. I mean, from the forties, uh, he played him. Late 30s through the 50s, and then they actually had something called Hoppy Land. I don't know if you knew about this. No. It was the Star Wars um, galaxies of its day. <laughs> William Boyd would make um, numerous appearances there, so you would go there and actually get to see Hopalong Cassidy. But but apparently it wasn't really a Western-themed thing for some reason. It had roller coasters and stuff like that, so it, it didn't last very long. <laughs> As you might expect. Throughout in in all three of the stories in this issue, he's referred to as Sheriff Cassidy. So that I don't know if the comics were following a different continuity or if that was something that was established later on. I don't know. It's he's he's referred to specifically as a lawman or as a sheriff. And the the only other little detail from the story that I caught was when he is tracking the leader of the the Bradley gang, and he notices that one of the horse prints is is heavier or deeper uh, because that horse would have been carrying the weight of two men. That's like a, a, a little detective detail that I remember from uh, the both the movie and the book, The Name of the Rose, because that was an important plot point. Um, sure. And I, I remember that movie with a uh, very young Christian Slater, I think his first movie, uh, and read the book too. But yeah, 
I mean, that's all I got for Hopalong Cassidy. There wasn't much more to this. Um, yeah, like, if I'm going to show somebody the greatness of Gene Colan's art, this isn't going to be the one, but I did want to represent it as a, a different genre and a different piece of his history. So, I'm glad I got to see it. I did not know that he that he did these yeah, at all. Yeah, for, so, for like three or four years, he did a ton of these um, consecutive issues and, and multiple stories. Like, this, this was his job, so... Um, but, I mean, you know what? I wouldn't have known that much about this guy uh, if I hadn't been talking to you about it, or I would have had to do my own research, and who wants to do that? So, so John, thank you for taking the time out to, uh, to cover this story with me. Uh, where else can people find you in the podcastosphere if they want to hear more from you? Uh, my wife and I do podcasts. We have one called Married with Comics, where we talk about comics and being married and lately encyclopedia brown as as ryan said earlier also uh we do the rod pod which covers uh transform idw phase two transformers comics and i am also over on the long box crusade with pat and delvin doing transformers chronicles the marvel years where we cover the marvel era transformers comics all right, folks, we are going to take a short promo break right now, and then I will be back to cover the listener feedback from all eight of the first season episodes. Stick around. You are receiving this transmission from The Rod Pod. Upload pending. Stand by for soundtrack transfer. I am Maggie. And I am John. And we are trapped, hurtling through space in a ship shaped like Rodimus's head. The ship, for reasons we haven't been able to determine, contains the entire run of the IDW Transformers Phase 2 comic. Which chronicle the events following the end of the war between the Autobots and Decepticons. So we figure we may as well read them all in order and report our findings to you. Stand by. Stand by. Upload complete now. The Rod Pod. Look for us at marriedwcomics.libsyn.com at iTunes, at Stitcher, or wherever good podcasts can be found. So, uh, till all are one. Till all are one. Back in the before time, the long, long ago, as we call February 2020, just three months ago, I dropped the first episode of Showcase Gene Colon, which explained my reason for wanting to celebrate his art and kicked off the series with a Zatanna backup story from World's Finest 274. That episode received comments on the Fire and Water Network website from Chris Franklin, Martin Gray, Dan S., Dr. Ange, Rob Kelly, David Ace Gutierrez, Joe X., Diablo Frank, Lizanne Oswalt, Ward Hill Terry, and Gothos Mansion. Chris Franklin from JLUCast and other shows here on the Fire and Water Network said, I will admit, as a kid, I was kind of hot and cold with Gene Colan, but then I was hot and cold with Kirby and Ditko, too. 
Colin's art is challenging for a younger reader. It's ethereal and not easily contained by thick, solid inclines. It asks the reader to really look over each panel and interpret the action and movement. I had come around some, and certainly respected his status in the industry, but when I finally got the black-and-white Essential Tomb of Dracula trade paperbacks, that really sold me on Colin. I honestly think his stuff works best in black-and-white, due to comics' limited coloring abilities during the bulk of his decades of work. Now, a watercolor treatment over Colin? Man, that would be sweet, I think. Uh, I'm trying to one trying to think if there was a watercolor treatment. Colin did this original graphic novel that I have now, but I haven't read it. it it's called Nightwings, of all things. Not, not related to the Nightwing character. Um, uh, it's an adaptation of a book series or something. Carrie Bates wrote it, and he did the art. And it has a somewhat painterly quality over his pencils. I don't know the exact... Uh, I'm going to try and, and do an episode covering that if I can ever find anybody else who has it. But, yeah, I mean... I think black and white is it, like really enhances his work. I don't know if it's better than seeing his work in color. I mean, possibly the the limitations of the coloring process during his time. You could make that case. I certainly think. It, it, I mean, it kind of depends on the quality of the black and white too. I mean, as as we described uh, in in some of the magazine issues, like with Conan and the Tomb of Dracula magazine, sometimes you get you get some real. Fine, fine work out of him in that in that uh, medium. Uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog said, Colin was one of those artists who I didn't appreciate until later in life. Yes, I bought stuff he drew, but always wondering, back then, why it looked awful. Later, I saw all of the dynamism you described. My favorite works of his are Night Force and the Phantom Zone miniseries. As you say, his stuff isn't perfect for superheroes, but Phantom Zone is absolutely bonkers. In fact, if you plan on covering that mini, I volunteer Martin Gray to be the co-host, and I hope I can be part of the three-man booth. Uh, well, the good news for Ange is that I have already covered Night Force over on Midnight the Podcasting Hour with Paul Hicks, uh, and Ange helped us cover that too. As for the Phantom Zone miniseries, yes, I will be tackling that at some point in Season 2 of the show, and both Ange and Martin Gray will be along for the ride. Speaking of Martin, from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl, he said, Thanks for a great new Fire and Water Presents strand. I love your passion, and well done on finding something little known for the show that's also a nod to your other work. That he's referencing my former Power of Fishnets podcast. And Martin concluded with, Oh, Ryan, a show taking a close look at the work of Gene Colon, and you somehow resisted calling it colonoscopy? Uh, okay, so yeah, Showcase Gene Colon is not a catchy or memorable name. There is nothing clever about it. I realize that. I just wanted something that was obvious and avoided jokes like colon exam and colonoscopy. I, I just, I, uh, yeah, so that's, that's why you get something boring like Showcase Gene Colon. Ward Hill Terry said, Perhaps you think you lack the artistic acumen and vocabulary to describe Colin's art, or any art, but you do an excellent job in conveying your responses to the artwork. You don't need to speak of Colin's technique or which kind of brush he used. We listeners enjoy hearing your reactions to his work. You certainly have the comic reading experience to know when and how a page works, and you can accurately and incisively describe those pages. I am eager for future episodes of the Colin cast. Well, thank you very much, Terry. That was why you were part of one of these episodes. Uh, 
Uh, Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network said, Surprising no one, I had an opposite track from most on Gene Colon. His art was always around when I was a kid, from my uncle's Doctor Strange copies to my own Tomb of Dracula purchases. I enjoyed his moody tales and readily accepted him when I still struggled with Kirby, Ditko, and Kane. It wasn't until I got into my teens and started closely studying drawing techniques in hopes of being able to produce my own art that I became disenchanted with Colin. I started to see it as more muddy, blobby, and uneven, like his camera was permanently out of focus and distorted. He's done good superhero work, in particular on Wonder Woman and Batman, but my appreciation was usually helped by his either being appropriate to the material or his competition being especially dire. So ultimately, I want to see Colin do stuff like Nathaniel Dusk, but stay the hell away from Black Panther. I think we can do both. All right, and thank you to everyone else who left a comment on that first episode. Moving on now to the second episode where I covered the Wonder Woman preview from DC Comics Presents 41 with my guest Angela from the Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast. That episode got comments on the website from Martin Gray, Chris Franklin, Rob Kelly, Diablo Frank, Ward Hill Terry, and Dr. Ange. Martin said, I was reading the Wonder Woman book when this preview of the New Direction arrived, and the colon art was a lovely shock to the system after what must have been a decade of the pleasant but predictable Jose Delbo visuals, often inked by Vinnie Coletta. The compositions with the unexpected angles, the sense of heft in frames such as page 4, panel 1, this was great stuff. Heck, the whole issue was blessed with stunning art, what with Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, penciling the Superman Joker strip. As for Colin and Tangal's Hermes and Mercury, oh my goodness. Even Colin, though, couldn't make that new chest logo look good. By all means, DC, have a marketable, trademarkable symbol, but keep it to the cover and splash masthead. Don't wreck a classic costume. The idea that Donald would dump a symbol that would, by this time, have meaning in the DC universe for something that's basically a piece of advertising is ridiculous. This is Wonder Woman, not Booster Gold. I do like that Diana says it might grow on her, while a stony-faced Hippolytus says to wear the new halter for a time at least, for the good it may do, hinting that she realizes it's a monstrosity, and that DC might do an about turn on the whole idea. Chris Franklin said, I was buying Wonder Woman at the time for the Huntress backups. Yes, I'm one of those guys. I did enjoy the shot in the arm Thomas and Colin gave the strip, and it felt more back to basics to me even then, because this opening bit honestly could have been from season one of the TV show, which did capture a lot of the Golden Age Wonder Woman feel, minus the kinkier Marston elements. Aww. I do agree with Martin that a lot of artists struggled with the WW at first. It did tend to make Diana's breasts seem smaller, as by that point her eagle's wings usually looked like a striped yellow bra. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, in his Style Guide artwork, which debuted right after this in 1982, and George Perez seemed to have the best handle of making it work. I seem to remember reading Colin wasn't too happy working on Wonder Woman for whatever reason. He didn't hang around very long, unfortunately, and the art kind of just drifted back to solid but mediocre journeyman work, for the most part, until Crisis hit the reset button. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard for me to say he didn't stick around that long. He was on it for a year and a half, almost two years. Um, and and to me, me, I mean, that in the retrospect, that's not a whole lot of time, but it feels longer because Roy Thomas was out the door almost immediately. He only wrote himself a couple of issues, uh, and then he was basically either just doing scripts or just doing stories with fill-ins while he was working on other projects. So to me, I've always kind of associated Gene Colan as sticking with the book longer and kind of having more of a more of a sense of endurance even though yeah it was less than two years but anyway rob kelly from this fire and water podcast network said gene colon does seem like an odd choice for wonder woman but of course the work is still beautiful not being able to rely on deep shadows and flowing capes colon's grasp of anatomy perspective and page design are front and center man did i love those free sample books dc did back in the day uh, Diablo Frank said, I'd happily buy a collection of the Thomas Colon run if only to see that mistreated preview quasi-cover finally employed as an actual one like it deserves. I don't recall it anywhere near as readily as Wonder Woman 288's because I'm simply not exposed to it as often, but I think it's clearly the superior of the two. Colon only lasted until issue 305, so you could do a six and a half issue initial collection and get all of Silver Swan and Judgment in Infinity regardless of whether sales warranted a second or third trade to finish out his run. Worth a shot, DC. Yeah, I, I think those would be great. I would happily get those. I would also, I mean, even though I've got all of the individual books, I would love like a, like a deluxe hardcover that had the whole run, but... Uh, Frank said, The DC bullet was so perfect, while the Wonder Woman symbol was so polished first draft. When I was a retailer and people knew Wonder Woman was my favorite hero, folks getting me WW stuff became a thing. I was Jeff and she was my frog. I can't imagine ever turning on merchandise with the Superman shield, but I definitely got sick of what to a Texan read as watered-down Whataburger gear. The Diamond S shield evolved out of the original downward-pointing triangle over over many years, with great distinction and communication of what it represents. Given that it's just a stylized bat, the Batman symbol is still strong and instantly recognizable. The double W is just two W's, with a vague allusion to scant feathers. I think Wonder Woman needed a cleaner eagle symbol that slyly incorporated the W shape rather than the reverse, and shouldn't have so doggedly pursued the dull W for so long. It also looks pretty lame on the bustier. I thought the new 52 design was snazzier, but the movie symbol definitely is the best option to date. Okay, on to episode 3, where Illegal Machine from the World Spine Network helped me cover the Iron Man story from Tales of Suspense 95. This episode received comments from Gothos Mansion, Martin Gray, Frank, and Chris Franklin. Gothos Mansion said, Colin must have been a car guy. I remember Penguin making an escape in a C2 Corvette in the 1980s detective issue. I always thought the C2 and C3 Corvettes were the most beautiful cars ever. Yeah, given how much he's done with cars from in like across the different decades with period pieces and contemporary stuff, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Gene Colan liked cars or liked drawing them. Uh, Frank said, great to hear Mac back on the network and a fun episode. I have never heard or read such a succinct and complimentary comment from Frank. I can only assume he was biting his lip not to vent his rage at how wrong we were the entire time, but he just didn't want to piss off his co-host. Anyhow, 
On episode 4, Paul Hicks from Waiting for Doom and The Gary Show helped me cover The Spectre, issue 1. This episode got comments from Chris Franklin, Frank, and Paul himself. Chris said, Spectre was a direct-only title, so since my trips to the nearest comic shop were few and far between, and two towns away, I never got into it. I do remember some controversy over a later issue, number nine to be exact, drawn by Gray Morrow, that showed a nude Madame Xanadu writhing in ecstasy as her and the Spectre apparently had phantasmagorical sex. I read about the kerfuffle over this in concurrent issues of Comics Buyer's Guide, and was really hoping to find it. Hey, I was like 13 or something, so sue me. I finally got to see the page in question in a back-issue article a few years back. Pretty racy for DC Comics of any period. Well, Chris, you were 13. I was like 37 or something, because as soon as you mentioned that, I, and I had never heard that story, but as soon as you mentioned that, I went to my, my uh, short box to see if I had Spectre issue 9. I did not. I had issue 8 uh, and a, a few other issues from that run. Um, but then I promptly, just you know, a little while, a few weeks ago now, uh, went to mycomicshop.com and ordered the Spectre issue 9. And I haven't read it yet, but I flipped through it. And yeah, Madame Xanadu is all kinds of naked in a bunch of the pages having ghost sex with the Spectre. Uh, it's pretty wild. Uh, I, I would like to say I would cover that issue someday in some shape or fashion. I just I don't know if I can concentrate. Anyway, on the fifth episode, Greg Arujo and I covered the first issue of Tomb of Dracula, the magazine. That app received comments from Chris Franklin and Liz Ann Oswald. Chris said, I don't think I would say Wolfman's rep is based on his association with great artists. Sure, it's bolstered by it, but the same can be said for any comic writer. He has written plenty of comic gems that would stand on their own as prose. Who is Donna Troy would work as a novella, aside from Perez's wonderful artwork, as would the Judas contract. I think you guys are right about how Wolfman's situation at Marvel was probably why his run on Tomb of Dracula magazine felt half-hearted. I think I recall reading that Wolfman really wanted to consider the end of the Tomb of Dracula comic the end of his Dracula, but Marvel wanted the new black-and-white Dracula mag to tie into the upcoming feature films, which are featured on the cover, and Wolfman figured he would rather do it than see someone else screw it up. It's why he stuck on New Titans for so long during its horrid post-Titans hunt period as well. Uh, on episode 6, Ward Hill Terry and I discovered Silverblade issue 1. That one received comments from Chris Franklin, Dr. Ange, and Siskoid, who all said basically the same thing. They slept on the series at the time, or didn't see it available, but given how much they love classic Hollywood films and tropes, they would be more inclined to check out the series today. Uh, I'm not sure how readily available it is. That I know that a few people have told me that they bought the complete 12-issue series after hearing our coverage, and that is really, really cool. Uh, it would be awesome, though, if DC released it as a deluxe hardcover or trade paperback or even just made all the issues available digitally. I don't think they are there. Um, I also, though, can't imagine the odds of that happening are really high anytime soon, sadly. On the seventh episode, Siskoid helped me cover Daredevil number 26, and we got feedback from Chris Franklin, Brian Linton, and Martin Gray. Chris said, Colin's reliance on heavy shadowing, even in this period, was a natural progression from Wally Wood, who was also a master of shadows and lighting, and designed Daredevil's iconic red suit, and set the pace for the book after it floundered a bit out of the gate. He seemed to kind of keep John Romita's Daredevil face and work his own magic from there. 
Brian Linton said, The two of you helped me realize over the last year or so, I am a sucker for monochromatic superheroes with clean and simple looks, like Daredevil and Silver Surfer. So this issue looks like it was made for me. And Martin thanked Siskoid for coming up with the phrase to describe Colin's later work, It's like a fog with images playing on it. And then came the eighth episode, on which Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians helped me cover the main story from Savage Sword of Conan, issue 33. For that, we got feedback from Chris Franklin, David Ace Gutierrez, and Brian Linton. Chris said, You know, I really need to get some Savage Sword of Conan issues and just read them. I read stacks of them 30 years ago that belonged to my then-brother-in-law, but it's been a long time. I didn't enjoy them as much as I should have because I was a superhero snob, but now I just appreciate a good, tight, well-told story, and my more cynical, older nature appreciates Conan's direct approach, too. This one looks and sounds fantastic. Colin's art is fantastic, of course, and Earl Norum on Barbarian Heroes hits me in the feels due to his work on He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Well said there, definitely. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, You guys are great together and should team up lots more. Great episode. Well, thank you for that. Uh, hopefully Mike and I will be recording a couple of things in the near-ish future. And that is going to be all for Season 1 of Showcase Gene Colon. Uh, you know, when I first started this, I didn't know where it would go. But I have had such a good time reading this assortment of stories and recording these discussions with other podcasters that I know and like. This was just such a very enjoyable show for me, and I am really happy to continue it later on this year. Right now, I don't know when I will pick it up again. I do need to kind of prioritize a few other things, like getting Cheerscast back up and running. Uh, but once that is up and going, I think I can start sprinkling in a few episodes of Gene Colon Spotlights from time to time. Uh, probably won't be a weekly show again, unless I wait a while before I come back to these. And, and if that's the case, then I don't know if I can really call it seasons, if it's more of a monthly thing. It kind of defeats the point. But uh, anyway, what that is to say is that there will definitely be more of these shows in the future. Because I have got a ton of material that I want to cover, from Superman and Batman to Doctor Doctor Strange and the Avengers, Howard the Duck, and some original colon stories that he drew for like the various magazines. There's just so much I want to discuss. Big name superheroes that I just mentioned to smaller projects, kind of in the realm of Silverblade, um, that a lot of people probably haven't even heard of or at least read before. Uh, so yeah, um, yeah. Gene the Dean Colon will return eventually, but until I get around to that, I hope everyone who is listening to this is staying healthy and safe and at least six feet away from the people that you don't want to die. Uh, thanks once again to John Schaefer Hames for helping me talk about the Hopalong Cassidy story in this episode. And as always, thank you to you, dear listener, for tuning into this show. If you like it, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook and Twitter. Leave a comment on the website post at fireandwaterpodcast.com and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents. And if you really enjoyed this show or any other shows on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, please please consider donating to our Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts for additional information. As always, thank you for listening, and find your joy. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Don't let them pick guitars or drive them old trucks. Let them be 
watch your babies grow up to be cowboys. Cause they never stay home and they're always alone. Even with someone they love. Cowboys like smoky old pool rooms and clear mountain mornings. 